Well, I could go home now. <laughs> you know, I, uh, my wife and I just got back from a trip, and we spent a little bit of time, I spent a little bit of time in Morocco, a nation filled <clears throat> with people aware that there's a higher power, and just a sense that what that does is it obligates them to a life of duty and responsibility and, and requirements in the sense of not being a God who is a God who starts with he loves us. And then to spend some time in Italy and France among a culture where there's just no interest in God really at all. And just coming back after a couple of Sundays of being in places like that, just longing for worship. <laughs> and then to be here. Uh, and to God, for God to bring us into his presence and remind us that that's what it is about, that he, he loves us. And I love what Michael said there about what it means to us for us to respond to that. And so now we're walking into this series on Love Does. And there's a great book that you can read. You know, we just, I'll just, just confess right now, we just stole the title. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a fun book to read with some great stories in it. I'm going to share one of those <clears throat> with you in our time together this morning. But I would encourage you to just develop, dive into this and figure out what part of my life is characterized, my faith is characterized by that reality of God's love for me and my love for him. So we're going to walk into that. And I would just pray and ask you to pray that God would give us humble hearts and open hearts say, you know, it's easy to say, well, somebody else needs to hear this. I do. I need to hear this this morning. And I trust that it's true for all of us in this room. So as we start, would you just join me uh, in prayer, asking God to do that very thing. God, we're thankful that you are present among us and that you, you love us and that heaven does meet earth and you're present here. We've sensed that you're present in this place this morning and we just give you so much um, uh, uh, thanks for that. But now, Lord, I pray that you would work in our lives and dig deeper into our hearts and our heads and our lives as we consider what it means to actually live a life that's characterized by worship. Um, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have a friend of mine, he's a restaurateur in Wisconsin and very, very good at it. And he's fun to travel with because everything is about food. Uh, you know, we will, order, uh, we will order all kinds of appetizers and just more than we need. And when my wife and I first spent some time with him, we just said to ourselves, we're going to have to pace ourselves when we're with Joe and Pam because Joe just loves food and concepts for it. In fact, at one point in time, he was asked, to consider, asked if he would consider being um, the, the president of the National Restaurant Association. And so as he travels and spends time with people that say, I want to be like Joe or I want to be a restaurateur, like him, oftentimes he will say to them, and I've heard him say it to people, he said, do not get into this business unless you absolutely love food. You must love food. Not the idea of being a restaurateur or you know, a business. You've got to love food. He says this, without a deep love for food, it will become cumbersome and it will become obligatory. It, 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 it just happens if the passion or if the love isn't there. The business is just too difficult if you don't love food. And I think about that when we come to our faith and realize 
there are a number of us that he either walked into or have been long enough into our faith journey that the question for us is this, is do we love God? Do we really, really love God? And if we don't, if we don't, it can become just exactly what Joe said it could become for a potential restaurateur. It can become immensely obligatory and cumbersome along the way. You know, there are those two possibilities, aren't there? One is to live a life of obligation and fulfilling expectations, and the other, a faith life of obligation and expectation. And then there's the other of living a life that is rooted in and fueled by a love for God. So as we walk into this this morning, I just want you to take an assessment, and perhaps you can use your card with the opportunity to be able to do some sermon notes on it. And let's just see how we're doing. I'm not going to ask you to speak out loud to anybody else, but just, just look at this. When you calculate um, some of the things that we're asked and invited into in our walk with the Lord, are, do they feel like they're obligation, I do it because I'm supposed to? Or does it feel like I, it's really fueled by a love for God? So let me just uh, bullet point a couple of those and um, ask you to just think in terms of percentages. What percentage of this is actually an expression or a re, uh, a, a, I do it because I feel a sense I, I, I ought to or obligated to? And what is fueled by I just, I just love God? So the first one you know, in the book of Hebrews, it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Get together and be in a room like this. So what does that feel like for you? What would you say, what percentage of that, the reason why you're here this morning is... I just do this. And what percentage of it do you say, I just, I just love God? And so go ahead and put that one together. What's the percentage for you? And then let's go to another one. It's this imperative that God has, this calling God has for us to make godly choices, for us to live life of obedience to him. When you say, when I live out obedience to God, um, what part of it for me is because I'm supposed to, and what part of it is I just really love him, and of course I want to obey. Calculate that one. What, where, where are the percentages there? And let's go to another category of the giving of our resources. You know, Jesus talks about that more than anything else. It's kind of amazing, actually, isn't he? What do you do with your resources? And you say, so what do I do with mine? And when I give my resources to God and Christian endeavors, what percentage of that feels like obligation for me and what is it just, I just, I just love this. So go ahead and chart that one. And what about serving others? What in your service to others says, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this, Jesus did it, and so I'm doing it because I ought to. And what percentage of it is just, you know, I can't help myself. And then how about this one? Uh, God says exactly it was the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, to actually share our faith with people that have yet to realize the value of a, a love relationship with God. And when you come to the sense of, yeah, I know I'm supposed to share my faith, what percentage of that comes from I'm supposed to and what percentage of it comes from I just can't help myself because I love God so much? So how did that go for you? Anybody here saying, yeah, I think I want to listen to this sermon about love for God. 
So that's where we're going with this, actually, because that's what God's intention for us is to to actually be characterized by a life that is fueled by a passion for, a love for God. And in the same way, Joe would say to a potential restaurateur, don't do it if you don't love it. Um, God says the same thing. Paul says the same thing uh, to us this morning. Our, Our goal is to bring every person to life in Christ and someone has asked the question is your life worth anybody wanting you know is it filled by a passion or is it filled with a sense of obligation or I'm I'm gonna just abide by the principles I'm supposed to is that really the gospel is it really the good news when we talk about the gospel one of the prime one of the first things we say recognizes this is that God is good and beautiful Is there anything good and beautiful about a life that is fueled by obligation and perhaps guilt and compulsory activities? Is that good and beautiful? If it's not, then what is it that God has called us to? He has called us to a life that is fueled by a love for him. That's what he's called us to. So let's look at this this morning. Now, first of all, I want to do three primary things, and the first two are going to go pretty fast. The first is this, is to recognize that a story marked by love is always a better story. A story that's marked by love, that has love in it, is always a better story. Perhaps you heard the incident that occurred in Texas. You know, a businessman had this large gala, and he had a whole bunch of people that were there uh, for this event, and in the middle of it, he was kind of showing off his life and his, and his possessions, and he had this huge Olympic-sized saltwater pool in his backyard, and it was actually filled with several sharks. And he called all of the people out after a wonderful dinner together, and he just said, hey, I, I, a couple things I'd like to just offer to anybody who's willing to just jump in the pool and swim across to the other side. And he offered, I don't know, his oil fields in West Texas, and then he brought out his beautiful daughter uh, who was marrying age and he said, I'll offer my daughter's hand in marriage. All of a sudden there was a splash and there's this young guy who's in the pool swimming for his life across the pool getting out on the other side. The business owner was shocked because he didn't think anybody ever actually even take him up on it. And uh, he, says, he, he says, fearing for his wallet, first of all, he says, you want my oil fields in West Texas? And the guy just looks at him with a stare in his eyes. And he says, no, I don't want your oil fields in West Texas. And he said, you want my daughter's hand in marriage. Same look. No, I don't want your daughter's hands in marriage. And he said, what do you want? He said, I want, I want to know who pushed me in the pool. <laughs> now, now. That story would have been better if it had been about love, right? You see, that's the point. A story marked by love is always a better story. When we talk about love in in premarital counseling, we talk about, well, what is it? You know, it's so easy for us, you know, with stars in our eyes to look at another person and say, I just love the way you make me feel. Or it might even be a little bit more kind of... uh, uh, you know, self-beneficial, I love what you do for me. And you get to the point where you say, let me help you understand what love really is. Uh, simply spoken, love is this, when the deepest longings of the other person become my deepest longings. 
when the deepest longings and concerns of another person become those same longings and concern for me, I realize this has happened. What you need is my need now, my driving force in my life. What you desire is my desire as well. Your concerns, they've become my concerns as well. That's what love is. When the deepest needs or concerns of another person become the deepest needs and concerns of myself. So you see, that's where we get to this theme of love does. Because love does. Love does. A story marked by love is always a better story. So when we take out the text that you have on the front of your connection brochure this morning, we see that in a story that's marked by love, uh, what love does. So if you have your Bibles or your uh, smartphone or whatever it is, just turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 or even take out your bulletin and look at it there. Beginning in verse 6, Paul writes these words, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken, since we have the same spirit of faith. We also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So I move here to the second reality of this. The first is that a story marked by love is always a better story. The second is this. God's story is marked by his love for us. That's what this is about. That's what Paul was focusing in on. His love for us. His primary identifier. What is God like? It will always start with God as love. The whole book, the whole Bible is a love story that just talks about his love for us. We sang about it during our worship time together. How he loves us. And he's a good, good father. It's who he is. And in verse 6, we see what he does. What he does is this. He causes the light of the knowledge of God's glory to be displayed out of darkness. If you look back at the verse before that in verse 5. Out of darkness, a light begins to shine. Now, when Paul is writing this on light... The people that were listening to this, that first, that first heard this letter, 
They know exactly what he was talking about. We're a lot further removed from that, so we might not know what's in their mind, but I'll tell you about that. It's a little bit like this. If you talk about the World Series to come, somebody from Kansas City, we know what's in our mind. It's uh, Royals 2016. You know, it, it just, it's just there. You talk World Series, that's what we immediately think about. And maybe 2017, who knows, right? But it just is right there. So when Paul talks about light, there are at least three reference points that would come to his mind and to the mind of those that were listening. The first is when light was first introduced. We go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 because they would have. The one who created the world and said, let there be light, and there was light. And we see this good and beautiful world that is characterized by God's relationship with Adam and Eve and his desire and longing for that to be the way he would live with all of the people that he has created to walk with them in the garden, for them to, on a day-by-day basis, to have this rich relationship and fellowship with him. That was the way it was intended to be. So when light comes out of darkness, again, it's light that is like what it was when God first created the world. That that's what he wants, that kind of a love relationship with us. And, you know, there's all this talk this day about organic things and natural things and how important it is to be able to get back to the stuff that's organic and natural because it's the best thing. If you want to be organic, this is it, to have a relationship, a daily relationship with the Father of the world. That's organic. That's the intention that God has for every single human life, to go back to the way it was intended to be from the very beginning. And so here we see this declaration of God's love in the midst of darkness that is overcome. That light is back. Well, there's another reference to light that they would have known about, and it's in Isaiah 9. And I think many of us know this when we get to the Christmas story. If you have in your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 9, and you get to the second verse, and it says this. You'll, you'll recognize these words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And as Isaiah gets deeper into this, we see that he refers to the one who comes and is identified as the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, a, a, a mighty God, prince of peace. How does, the, how, how does the light restored because Jesus comes into the world? So the light is a God that wants a relationship with us of intimacy, of daily relationship. And it is possible because God does everything needed for that to happen through this light, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has come into the world that allows that to happen again so that we can have a relationship with one who is described on an ongoing basis as a wonderful counselor, God of, of, of might and power and compassion. <laughs> That's the light. That's God's love. And then there's one more reference to light that um, no doubt Paul was thinking about that, and that is his own experience. Do you remember? Paul was the guy who was trying to kill all of the Christians. And he was on his way to Damascus to slaughter more of them, to imprison and slaughter them. And what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? A light blinded him. Paul knew firsthand what God's light would do. And you see it even uh, laid out in this text. The, the inference of this text, the tone of this text is that this is what God does. God does a work in a human life 
and he changes a person's moral disposition and spiritual condition. That's what he does. So out of the darkness, a light has shined in the world so that we might live our life organically as it was intended to be in relationship with the Father as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and live it in such a way that it changes our moral dispositions and our spiritual character. That's how he loves us. So when we sing that song, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us, this is how he loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe and trust in him might not perish but have everlasting, abundant, full life. So should it be any surprise that we're about bringing every person to life in Christ? That's who he is. That's what he does. Our deepest longing to live life the way it was meant to be in relationship with the Father and all of who we were designed to be might actually be true of my life. And God knows our deepest longing. He even knows it better than we do. And he says, I will give everything so that that might be true for you. Our deepest longing is his deepest longing. Oh, how he loves us. And then we go to this third aspect of this, and that is that when Paul comes to this point right here in this text, that is, our story is to be marked by our love for God. That our relationship with God wouldn't be obligatory, wouldn't be compulsory, wouldn't be a duty or an obligation, but that it actually would be deep love for God. He describes a Christian's love for him and, and I just want to be clear on this. If it is not about love for him, then it is not Christian faith. It is not. It is something else or it is something that has come through the door with you in addition to the love, and it's got too much power. If it is about obligation, if it is about fulfilling expectations, then it is not Christian faith. God's intention is for him to love us so much that it is discovered and embraced by us in such a way our deepest longing becomes his deepest longing and then when we love him, his deepest longings become my deepest longing. And that's what we see here in the story. We see Paul describing a people that are characterized by deep longing to see what God's longings are happen in the world. And so then he gets to this. We are, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're in despair. We're persecuted, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You know why we are? Not because it's an obligatory path that we have to take if we're following Jesus. It's because we love him. And we know what he wants. And what he wants, it says in this text, is that every person would know him as well. It's his deepest longing. And so we'll say, I will do it. I will carry around the death of Jesus. I will live with a sense that my life doesn't matter nearly as much as his glory. In fact, that's what we get to at the end of this text. 
Did you notice this here? I, this, this, this passage is it, it, it's stunning in the way it stands out. If we read it right, in verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, I have to confess, I've read that in the past and I've thought that's an eternal glory for me because this is achieving for us. I think it's all about my eternal glory and the crowns I wear. Bunk. It's his eternal glory. They're achieving for us our deepest desire and that is that he would be glorified. In the end, the question, well, what am I going to get out of it? You know what you're going to get out of it? You know what I'm going to get out of it? A love. Not glory. I'm going to get out of it a love for somebody worth giving my life to. That's the invitation. Do you want to have in your life a love for somebody worth giving your life to? And if so, we're talking about the same thing. A life that is fueled by love for him. So then we ask this question, don't we? How do I get there? How do I get it back? I just, um, I got a little extra time this morning, so I just want to read a, a story and then a little bit of a testimony as we get to what does this look like application-wise. In this first chapter of this book, I was actually in a coffee house earlier this morning and the person at the counter said, I love that book. It was actually, it's actually a New York Times bestseller book. That's whimsical, got some great stories in it. I want to share one about the author, Bob Jeff, who, um, uh, as a 17-year-old, a junior year, I guess, his life was going in the wrong direction. Listen to this. I decided it was time to leave high school and make my move to Yosemite. He had met a guy who worked, I think, for Young Life in his high school, trying to engage him in discussions with Jesus. But Bob just really didn't even have time for that, and he kind of kept Bob at arm's length. But he knew enough about the guy that he was impressed with him, and he saw the way he lived and his relationship with his girlfriend, and he just decided when he was going to head out for Yosemite, he'd stop by. He'd stop by this guy's house. And so he says, I knocked on Randy's door, and after a couple long minutes, Randy answered. He was groggy and bedheaded. I had obviously woken him. I gave him the rundown on what I was doing. All the while, Randy stood patiently in the doorway, trying his best to suppress a puzzled expression. You leaving soon? He asked when I'd finish. Yeah, right now, actually. I said as I straightened my back and barreled my chest to show that I meant business. Look, Randy, it's time for me to get out of here. I just came by to thank you for hanging out with me and for being a great friend. Randy kept his earnest and concerned face, but he didn't say a word. Oh, hey, he inserted. Will you tell your girlfriend? Oh, hey, I inserted. Will you tell your girlfriend goodbye for me, too, you know, when you see her next? Again, no word from Randy. He had this weird, faraway look on his face, and he was looking right through me. He snapped back into our conversation. Hey, Bob, would you wait here for a second while I check something out, Randy said. No, no sweat, Randy. I had nothing but time now. What did I care? Randy disappeared for a few minutes into the house while I stood awkwardly on the porch with my hands in my pockets. When he came back to the door, he had a tattered backpack hanging over his shoulder by one frayed strap and a sleeping bag under his arm. He was focused and direct. All he said was, Bob, I'm with you. Something in his words rang right through me. He didn't lecture me about how I was blowing it and throwing opportunity away by leaving high school. He didn't tell me I was a fool and that my idea would fall off the tracks on the way to the launch pad. He didn't tell me I would surely crater even if I did briefly lift off. He was resolute, unequivocal, and a no agenda. He was with me. 
And then it goes on to talk about their trip to Yosemite and him trying to find one job after another and decline one time after another. And they're getting to this point. He was getting to this point of despair. And Randy was just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm here with you. And then he got to this point where he just said, you know, I just think it's over. I just think it's over. And he said this, I had only a few bucks left after buying gas, and Randy offered to spring for dinner. As we walked back out to the car after eating, I turned to Randy and I said, you know, Randy, you've been great coming with me and everything, but it looks like I'm striking out. I think what I'll do is head back and finish up high school. After a short pause, Randy said again what had become a comfort to me throughout the trip. Man, whatever you decide, just know that either way, I'm with you, Bob. What is love like? Love does. We tell a story like that, and it sounds like the way it ought to be, doesn't it? That's what God says about us. You want me? I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll walk with you through everything. More than anything else, you need to know that's who you are to me. And God's invitation for us is to be like he was. And we see an example of Randy being an expression of that. So what does it look like to be able to get that? I just want to mention a couple of ways that um, I think that we can respond to, to that. And I'm going to tell you one more thing. Actually, I just picked this up out of Christianity Today, and there's a testimony in the back about a guy whose life was going a bad way. And he didn't even know it because he was so religious and connected. But this is what the story, how the story goes, and you get this theme of love in it. As my contempt for all things Christian hardened, my church involvement actually ramped up. At age 22, I became a summer camp counselor alongside one of my best friends. We played sand volleyball, slung frogs into the lake, and pranked our youth pastor. The final night of summer camp, the guest pastor ended his sermon with an emotional altar call. Here we go again, I thought. I started to zone out until out of the corner of my eye, I saw my friend walk forward. More shocking than him walking the aisle was the later evidence that something had happened to him that night. He stopped drinking and partying. He started studying the Bible, voraciously reading Christian books and attending church. Further, his behavior seemed to come not from obligation, but from love. He seemed to want to know God and learn from him and be like him. His countenance said it all. He had joy. Month after month, like a flower in spring, he grew. I spent the next five months closely watching him study and pray and seek Jesus. His commitment and love for God were unwavering, and soon a waterfall of hope washed over me. The thought seized me. Change is possible. It's actually possible. It gave me hope that Christianity could affect something real in my life. One morning, an honest prayer began to spill out of me. God, I don't love you, but I want to. I wasn't mincing words anymore. I knew what love felt like because I loved my mom, dad, brothers, and sister. I felt nothing like that for God, but wanted to. I shared that prayer with my dad, and he prayed with me, never judging, accepting me where I was. I lived with that prayer for weeks, dragging it around with me everywhere. I went, my dry heart soaking it in. Then one night, everything changed. 
It was early and still dark outside. I was in a deep sleep when suddenly my eyes opened. I remember feeling confused about why I was awake at 5 a.m. I lay silently in the dark for a few seconds. Then I heard something in my mind, distinct and clear. It was like no other thought I had had. It didn't shout and it didn't whisper. I heard these words, get up, pick up your Bible, and sit down at your desk. My eyes widened and my pulse sped up. I lay there paralyzed, and after a few moments, the rational side of my brain convinced me I was making it up. I closed my eyes, trying to get back to sleep, but I couldn't. The silence in the room was deafening. The thought came again, get up, pick up your Bible, and sit down at your desk. I had heard enough enough Bible stories and listened to enough sermons to know it was time to pay attention. I got up, embraced the early morning chill, and found my Bible, which had been collecting dust under a lamp on my nightstand. I grabbed it, sat down at my desk. I stared at it for some time, unsure of what to do next. It seemed clear I needed to open it, so I picked a random spot. To this insistence, Bible roulette seemed to be God's way. In this instance, Bible roulette seemed to be God's way of getting my attention. I peeled back the pages. There I was, my heart and the scriptures wide open. In this moment, everything around me blurred and life seemed to come to a halt. I looked down to see the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 27, I read, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Like the destruction of a great dam, the flood waters of God's love crashed into me. In that moment, my secondhand spirituality became firsthand. My knowing about God was replaced with knowing God. And like my friend's experience, the change was permanent. That's it. That's the life that God is calling every one of us into. This love for God that fuels what love does. So here's what I want you to consider as you walk out of here and we leave here this morning. What's God saying to you right now? What's God saying to you right now? I'm going to give you three possibilities and maybe you've got another one. The first is, is God saying to you what God said to his friend there at that campfire? Give your life to God. It's always been perceived, this whole Christian thing has always been perceived as an obligatory thing that you're supposed to do because that's how we're supposed to live. But just now you're realizing, you know what? It's an invitation into a covenant relationship of love with the Lord of the universe. That's what I want. I want a covenant love relationship with God. And I will repeat Joe's words. Unless it is fueled by a deep love for God, don't do it. Unless coming to faith in Christ is fueled by a longing to be in a covenant love relationship with God, stay as far away as you can. But if you've got this sense inside of you that there's this passionate love for God that is fueling a desire to give your life to him, then welcome to the room filled with the rest of us that want to live their lives that way as well. And I would invite you on that card of your response to just write it down. In fact, on the tear-off, you might even note that 
And I would love to follow, we would love to follow up with you on that. I'm making a decision to enter into a covenant love relationship with the Lord of the universe. Second possibility, I think, for us is those of us that have been on this walk a long time, we say, you know what? I don't know where it went. But right now, it just feels mostly like obligation and expectation. And I want to get to the place where this gentleman got to in the story of his testimony. I want that. And that will be my prayer. God, I don't love you, but I want to. Would you give that love to me? And that's your response. It's not about doing anything. It's about asking God to show up and do something miraculous, to say something in our life. Say, that's it. That's going to be my prayer. God, I want to love you. Give me that love back again. And then the third possibility here, I think, is the one that we heard Bob Pierce. Some of you might know Bob Pierce's story. I think he was with Youth for Christ. And long, long time ago, he was traveling through India, and he just saw all sorts of poverty around him. And it's so easy to get so kind of cynical about it because it's just so overwhelming. And he prayed this prayer. It was actually in the jacket flyleaf of his Bible. Lord, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. You know, it is just so easy to get so busy with stuff, isn't it? So much just stuff and noise around us. And um, if I'm going to love God, I've got to know what his desires are in order that they would become my desires. So to say this week, God... Would you break my heart? Would you break my heart with the things that break yours? And we will find ourselves walking into a deeper love relationship with the Lord. Lord, break my heart. You know what that is? That's a love song. That's a love song. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us and for this invitation for us to walk into a relationship with you that is deep and significant and incredibly meaningful. So I pray now, even as we sing this last song about your love and our response to that, that you would give additional uh, guidance and direction to each one of us that we might walk out of here knowing what it is you intended to say to us this morning when you woke us up and sent us to church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.